The city is getting a facelift. Denver is getting all dolled up for the Democratic National Convention. I saw a city maintenance worker mopping a lamp post. I saw the parking for a fee signs replaced with pinup murals of dead musicians and Spider-Man. I've seen more street sweepers in the last 48 hours than I have in the last 48 months. The city is getting ready like a prom date or a whore. There are rumors of Oprah staying in the Reche side of town. Every cafe swears Obama loves our coffee and will stop in for a cup of joe with the regular Joes. Bullshit. The southern gun nuts voted in Bush twice because he was a president they could have a beer with. I've never seen Bush at a bar or, for that matter, near anyone who does not earn six digits. In the last five minutes, I've seen two pro-life trailers, cars towing a ratty trailer festooned with pictures of aborted babies, and two local news vans. The babies' frozen faces seem to shriek and wail the antithesis of Barack Obama's parroting of the word change. While abortion doesn't seem to inspire change in the minds of the general public, it does in me. Just imagine if Bush's, and by proxy the GOP's, rancid, lurching, mongoloid ideas had come to term. What's that you say? It did? Rubbish. Gas prices could and will go higher. The infrastructure of Iraq will remain good and fucked as will any relations with the United Nations, the nations we share the planet with, and indeed the planet itself. And I'm considering this election a scrambling chance at a late-term scraping at the womb of the country, a womb that has been shat in and utterly ruined with greed, deception, willful ignorance, and apathy. But really, who doesn't think of the president and many supporting members of the GOP as water-headed troglodytes that don't quite seem fully developed? Why, communists and terrorists are only allowed to say such things, and I'll see you in Guantanamo. Ah, uh, but here in Denver, everything is pretty and clean and perfect. Life is good a mile up, streets paved with cupcakes and blowjobs. So the city takes a long hot shower, it puts on its prettiest dress, straightening seams and smoothing out any wayward wrinkles. It carefully applies its makeup, painstakingly coloring inside the lines, wary of the colors too garish or conflicting. It will dance all week, making sure the awkward missteps are avoided or quickly and quietly covered up at best. Then, ensuring that the blood soaked into the shoes is not seen, it will coquettishly slip into bed with the party in opposition. Let's all hope that the whirlwind fling of politics and exposure is mindful of our first time. Let's hope it's not some cruel hard fuck that wipes its dick on our knees and throws down a $5 bill. This is just the first of a thousand points of hate. That was the first installment of a thousand points of hate, a political column. I'm Doug, and this is Mr. Wright. I'm here to talk about writing, politics, and op-ed, or opinion and editorial. I've talked about it on this show before that I had been contracted by um, several websites, such as altnews.org and truthout.org to write politics for them. This has led to a lot of great opportunities such as writing A Thousand Points of Hate, which was a four-installment series written for Alt News. It allowed me to be at the DNC when, when Barack Obama took the first nomination for, for president, a historical moment. It also allowed me to meet one of my heroes, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. That was years before that, um, as I was covering the Lessel Amon rally in Denver, which was a wrongful conviction um, protest. But I'm here to talk about writing about 
politics, which can be tricky, and there are two schools of thought on it. And I, based on what you've heard, obviously subscribe to one school versus the other. The first one that I don't subscribe to is writing with absolute detachment, cold, objective. These are the ones that have the numbers, the f basic facts, educated conjecture. Um, you see this pretty much in mostly newspapers without bias, or you see it in um, foreign newspapers writing about... Uh, an example is how I, I don't read any newspapers from this country because there's bias in them. I tend to read the, the Guardian out of the United Kingdom because they write objectively about America. You can write objectively if you want. It's fine. I think it's dry. I think it's too technical. Um, I don't think there's... I mean, there's there's an aspect of muckraking in it, and by that I mean, like, sifting through the trash and muck to get at the truth. Capital T, truth. But I think there's two sides to the truth coin, and that is writing with attachment. But I do want to keep talking about writing with unattachment first. Woodward and Bernstein, they did, for the most part, unattached writing about politics and broke Watergate wide open. Great. I think there was a sense in them of the attachment that they wanted to get at the truth, and that's the fire that was burning to get them to where they wanted to go and say what they had to say and do what they had to do to start the impeachment of Nixon, a truly horrible human being uh, at the time. So, I mean, yes, you can write with um, unattachment. You can write about it objectively if you'd like. That's more than fine. I have nothing against it. But, and here's where I flip, I write with attachment. Um, being a huge fan of Hunter S. Thompson's um, and a few other, I can't, I can't think of the, the guy off the top of my head, unfortunately. There was a, another political writer for um, the uh, New York Times that I really liked, and I can't think of his name. He doesn't write anymore, and that's, that's why it's not popping up in my brain, because I haven't read him recently. But um, I wrote with attachment. And to give you a good example of this, uh, not politically, but uh, Hunter S. Thompson changed the way sports writing was written, was covered, when he covered the Kentucky Derby in 1976. He didn't really cover as much of the horses racing, the numbers, the facts, the stats, um, the odds. He wrote about the debauchery and the drinking and the drugs and, and the tradition and the craziness of it. He immersed himself in the story. Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail is a really good book by him that talks about his attachment during the, I believe, 1976 or 77 uh, presidential race, Better Than Sex, which was the first book I ever read by um, Hunter S. Thompson, was about the 1992 political campaign um, with Clinton and Perot and, oof, um, I want to say Bob Dole, but I don't think that's right. And I was just, it, it broke my brain reading this um, and how he injected himself into the politics. And he wrote about it passionately with feelings as opposed to that cold detachment. And that's how I write about politics. And you can hear that, especially talking about the city I live in, where I go, sometimes, you know, Skid Row's getting a facelift, and are we a prom date or a whore? That's not something you're going to read in the Denver Post. They're going to say, millions of dollars spent in, you know, city reclamation and maintenance. Yeah, great. Um, but why? Is it, It's to put on a, a false face. 
And you're not going to hear someone say that. You're going to hear, well, yeah, you are. You're going to hear me say it. So that's what I like about writing about politics. That's how I write about it. It's how it makes me feel. They're my opinions. Part of op-ed, it's op and uh, opinion editorial. It's my opinion, and I'm editorializing, editorializing, good lord. I can write the stuff, I just can't say it, folks. What's going on around me, how it's making me feel, the situation with the political uh, landscape. Um, I'm writing Hate at First Sight right now, and the, the new columns about uh, the vice presidential camp, um, nominees and, and how they make me feel. And I, do, I, I did muckraking, I looked at their voting records, I looked at how they vote, what they voted on. One of them, I think, is a lizard in a man suit. But, and that's the kind of stuff I would say and do, in fact. You don't find that in the Denver Post. You don't find that in the New York Times. They're going to talk about, yeah, sure, voting records, stances, uh, sound bites, quotes. But you're not going to hear how that writer feels. And given, I mean, paycheck's a paycheck. If they're paying you to be objective, be objective. I've been lucky enough that the editors I've worked for, Jim Cargrove especially, wanted my opinion, wanted the way I write about politics. So I was free to be as myself on the page as I wanted to be. Um, in fact, when I started writing uh, Hate at First Sight, he jokingly, when he edited the first column, said, I must be getting slow in my old age because I only said the word fuck three times. Usually I use, uh, use the word like punctuation, sometimes as punctuation, actually. Those are the two schools of thought writing about politics. I mean, you can expand that to writing about pretty much anything in terms of journalism. Do you want to be objective or do you want to be subjective? What is the editor looking for? What are you looking for to get out of it? What are you writing about? Is it something you're passionate about? Is it something that you don't really care about, but you're being paid to do it? Or it's a stepping stone to something you want to do? These are the things that are going to inform your writing process and your thought process and really your life. Um, writing should be very central to your life outside of, you know, friends and family and, and, and things like that. Paramount to everything else, are you writing what you want to be writing? And if you're not, why? That's what you have to ask yourself. And do something different. Reach out to other editors. Build a portfolio and showcase those pieces. Because you know what? If I was going to go to anyone else... If I hadn't been approached and I wanted to write about politics, I would go to certain outlets that I knew to be liberal and allow for uncensored speech um, in terms of content and profanity and all that. I would put a thousand points of hate in there and go, this is how I write. If this is not what you want, let me know right off the bat and we can just part amicably. It's that simple. If you're not going to let me write how I want to write, what I want to write about... You know, within the terms, if they said, we want a political writer, and I said, here you go, and they went, well, okay, no, um, you keep calling editors dog fuckers. I would say, okay. But, you know, truth out, and it was Jim Cargrove that came to me on that one, he said, they want your voice. There's, you know, no negotiations on that whatsoever outside of finances. So, that worked out. But like I said, if I'd just gone... If I didn't know Jim and he was looking for a political writer and they were willing for someone extremely liberal and outspoken, yet articulate, I would hand him some of my pieces and go, here, and they would go, perfect. And I would go, great, thank you. You're going to let me write what I want to write, how I want to write it. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, like I said, if you're not writing what you want to write, how you want to write, who you're writing for or about, why are you doing it? 
Ask yourself that and then make the appropriate choices. Treat it like a flowchart of the yes, no, why or why not. Um, treat it like a choose-your-own-adventure, and hopefully you choose right, because you know what? This is life. You shouldn't actually treat it like a, a, a choose-your-own-adventure book. That's silly, because if you make the wrong decision, you can't flip back to 15 and choose the other thing. So make sure what you're doing is what you want to be doing, and that's my opinion. I'm Doug for Mr. Wright, and remember, if you keep writing, they'll keep reading. Right on. If you like this, check out some of our other shows like D20 Proof, Knapsack Comedy, and Mr. Wright. You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, yeah.